Lord, everything that we are about is because of you, and uh, we are really in awe of the work that you've been doing all around us, the, the people you have called to this particular local church, the ministry that you do for us and in us, how we have seen resurrection happen, how resurrection uh, is true in our lives, that it is not, uh, that it always comes, uh, it always comes at the right time. And for that, we're grateful. We're grateful that resurrection doesn't come when there is just a little bit of hope or a lot of hope. It comes when there is no hope. For that, we are grateful. We're grateful that you have been resurrecting a call of ministry in the lives of men and women in our congregation. And we're grateful that we have become a congregation in this area that affirms the call of ministry in women. We look at what you've done for Uh, Pastor Andrea over the last number of years, what you are doing in Pastor Hope, what you are doing in Pastor Mikhail. We're grateful. We want to be this kind of community that raises up good pastoral leaders. When people become pastors, when they uh, say that they are going to be on the track of ordination, it means that they are giving their lives away and they are marrying the church. And these three women have done that. They have given their lives away, and in covenant relationship, they have said, we belong to the people of the 8th Street Church. For that, we're grateful. We pray that this uh, seven weeks of sabbatical would be a recharge for Mikhail and for Brent. Would you glue their family together? May these seven weeks be the greatest seven weeks of their whole marriage. Would they value the care that they, uh, and the time that they have with their children, with Austin and with Galilee? Would you reinvigorate them and would you help them as they do this work of spiritual discernment? Would you help them come back with an imagination that belongs to you? This is what we hope for. We also pray for Andrea as she has imagined herself in these words and as God has spoken to her, We pray that you would minister to her through us this evening. And we pray that today, here on this Father's Day, good and holy and gracious God, we pray that you would hear the prayer for our dads. For fathers everywhere who have given us life and love, help us to honor them as the Scriptures command. For new fathers who are full of hope, for longtime fathers who are full of wisdom, for fathers who are yet to be and fathers soon to be, we pray that you would hear uh, these prayers for the fathers of your church. We're grateful, God, for the men who may or may not have children on their own, but they act like a father to someone who's in need of advice or support, nurture, and love. We thank you for older brothers, cousins, teachers, coaches, grandfathers, uncles, mentors who act as surrogate fathers. For those who have shaped our lives without claim of family or kinship, for those who have taught us, guided us, and shaped us, and molded us into the servants of Christ our Lord, who have demonstrated the love of our Heavenly Father, we pray that you would hear our prayers for these fathers. We pray for stepfathers that that have assumed a role of love and joy, who have loved the children of another as their own and have created a new family through their love and their kindness, have acted in a healing manner. They have been redemptive and kind. And just as you have formed a new family, so have they. So we pray that you would hear this prayer for our stepfathers. 
For adoptive fathers who have heard the call of God to lovingly step forward, for those that are in need of their care, we thank you for helping them to exhibit your way of generosity and hospitality, for providing protection, safety, and even homes. We pray for these adoptive fathers. Lord, we know that for some, while there are good fathers, uh, Father's Day is difficult. So we're grateful that you are the good father, and today we think of and we pray for the fathers who have lost a child through death. There are so many who have had to experience tragedy of losing a child through miscarriage or accident or disease. No father should have to outlive his children, but we know that your son died, and we know that heaven and earth erupted with your grief when that happened. For the fathers who cannot be with their children today because of death, we pray that you would bolster their faith, give them hope and console and support them through us, your church, as well as their family and their friends. We pray, God, for these fathers that mourn. And Lord, because we want to honor and obey you, we pray for those fathers that have not been good. We pray for those that have created hurt. We pray today for the fathers who have been unable to be a source of strength, who have not responded to the needs of their children and have not sustained their families. For the many fathers who were in jails and prisons throughout this city and this state, we pray that you would draw them to yourself and you would redeem their lives. Be a father to them. Be the father to them that they couldn't be for us. For the fathers who struggle with temptation, violence, or addiction, for those who do harm, and for those whom they have harmed, merciful and forgiving God, have mercy on absentee fathers and fathers that struggle. And today we pray for the children today who are without fathers, who have lost fathers because of either death or disappointment. You are the good father to the brokenhearted. Be the father to the fatherless today. God, our Father, in your wisdom and love, you made all things. Bless these men that they might be strengthened as Christian fathers. Let the example of love and faith in you shine forth. Grant that we, their sons and daughters, honor them always with a spirit of profound respect. We pray these things in the name of God, our Father, Christ, our brother, the Spirit, our mother. Amen. And amen. Throughout the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is continually trying to teach the disciples the mystery of the kingdom, and they are continually failing to understand. And I'll confess, as I first read these parables, I didn't fully grasp what Jesus was trying to say either. I'm with the disciples. The mystery of the parables still evades me at times. It seems like such a simple story on the surface, but the more I sat with the text and studied it, the more I was inspired by the picture being presented. In chapter 4, we read that the kingdom of God is like someone who is scattering seed, and the seed is sprouting and growing even though he does not know how. And later, the kingdom is compared to a tiny mustard seed. And as I began to study, I was struck with the ordinariness of these unassuming two images. In ancient Israel, if a prophet were to compare God's kingdom to something in nature, you would expect him to choose something powerful or imposing, maybe something like the mighty cedar tree of Lebanon, which was a time-honored symbol of the nation of Israel. To do so would probably conform more to what you would expect out of the biblical metaphor. For example, you find in Daniel chapter 4, referring to the Babylonian Empire, these are the visions I saw while lying in bed. 
I looked, and there before me stood a tree in the middle of the land. Its height was enormous. The tree grew large and strong, and its top touched the sky. It was visible to the ends of the earth. And then in Ezekiel chapter 31, referring to the Assyrian Empire, it says, Consider Assyria, once a cedar in Lebanon with beautiful branches overshadowing the forest. It towered on high, its top above the thick foliage. So it towered higher than all the trees of the field. All the great nations lived in its shade. But yet, we see in this gospel passage that Jesus did not choose to compare the kingdom to the mighty cedar tree of Lebanon. He chose to compare it to an ordinary mustard seed. And the interesting thing about the mustard seed is that the people of Palestine would have viewed the mustard seed as kind of obnoxious and invasive It's kind of like a common weed. Maybe like crabgrass in your yard when you want Bermuda to grow. It's like you wouldn't plant it there on purpose. And they wouldn't have put it in their garden because they would have feared that it would have totally taken over. But even though the seed is very small, it can grow to reach 10 or 12 feet high. So here we have an image of this ordinary plant that is powerful. In fact, it is so explosive that if it runs wild, it could even uproot the foundation of your house. And then we have a man sowing seed, and no matter what he does, the seed will sprout and grow, yet he does not know how. And it's as if Jesus is saying that the kingdom of God is everywhere. It is the ordinary, it's in the ordinary, and it's in the wild. No matter what you do, it's taking over. You can't control where it grows, and it will burst forth despite your shortcomings and your failures. This summer, we've been hearing Jewish tales from the nation of Israel, and despite their continual efforts to mess up God's plan, the kingdom still bursts forth. Uh, The nation of Israel is a perfect example of a people group who continue to screw this up. They had dysfunction and hurt, but the kingdom kept coming forth despite their efforts. And I don't know if you've noticed this evening, but I'm actually pregnant. Um, (laughs) And I was hoping that would be my excuse to get out of this sermon tonight, but it didn't work out. We have two more weeks. So on the one hand, (laughs) it seems that I'm experiencing something that is very miraculous and amazing at the moment. And there's a process of life growing in within me. I mean, I can feel somebody kicking inside of me right now. But then on the other hand, pregnancy is utterly commonplace, and every other human being has come into existence by this process. Um, The good creator is at the very heart of life and growth, and this is the evidence of the kingdom right at hand. God is the source of life among us, which is miraculous and ordinary. I remember a time when Evan and I were newly married. We felt for the longest time that we were supposed to serve in missions in some way, And we were sitting in a service at Bethany First Church, and the pastor made an announcement that they needed missionaries to serve in the nation formerly known as Swaziland. And I immediately looked at Evan, and I said, should we go? And he had a lot of misgivings and insecurities. We had been married less than six months. Evan had never done any sort of ministry work. In fact, he was trained as a network engineer, and we were very young. He wasn't sure what a network engineer was going to do in Africa. Yet despite our insecurities, we decided to commit anyway, and as, as young and as ignorant as we were, we were repeatedly amazed at the way we saw the kingdom pushing out around us. 
This is the image of the kingdom that Jesus is painting for us. In spite of our failures and misgivings, as we go, be out, go, go about our ordinary lives, sowing ordinary seed, the kingdom of God is exploding before us. One person who is a master at capturing the ordinary in beautiful ways is my dad. He's here tonight. My dad loves taking pictures. In fact, everyone knows that you do not have to bring a camera to our family events because my dad is sure to take pictures. He's an artist and one of the most creative people I know, and he captures beauty wherever he goes. When we lived in Oregon, he would take pictures of landscapes that were breathtaking. Here's some examples. And since moving to Oklahoma, he's taken photos of bridges and rural landscapes that capture the beauty of this state. And a few months ago, I graduated from Nazarene Theological Seminary. And while we were in Kansas City, my dad took a picture of me outside the Crown Plaza Mall, and he posted it on Facebook with this caption, Our Beautiful Daughter. And my first reaction was to pick myself apart. My smile looks goofy. My cheeks are chubbier than normal because I'm in my third trimester of pregnancy. In fact, I hid the picture from my timeline on Facebook, as I've done with many other pictures that my dad has taken of me. So it's a miracle that it's up here tonight. <laughs> However, I'm convinced that my dad sees something different when he looks at me. Even on this sunny, ordinary afternoon in Kansas City, the kingdom of God is breaking through with the love of the Father saying, here's my beautiful daughter. I realize that this isn't a perfect metaphor, and it's no secret that there's brokenness and evil in our world. We know when a father has not done what he's supposed to, fathers leave their families, fathers have work addiction, they love their work or maybe the fruits of their work more than their own children, Fathers are harsh with their children, trying to force them to live up to unreachable standards. And fathers abuse their children and their wives. The Reverend Gregory J. Boyle is the founder of Home, Homeboy Industries in Los Angeles, California, the largest gang infer, in, intervention, rehabilitation, and reentry program in the world. And in 1986, he was appointed pastor of the Dolores Mission Church in Boyle Heart, Heights neighborhood of East L.A., at the time, Dolores Mission was the poorest Catholic parish in the city, located between two large public housing projects with the highest concentration of gang activity in Los Angeles. He witnessed the devastating impacts of gang violence on his community during what was called the Decade of Death, beginning in the late 1980s. In the face of law enforcement and criminal justice tactics and policies and suppression and mass incarceration as a means to end gang violence, Father Boyle and parish and community members adopted what was a radical approach at the time, treating gang members as if they were human beings. In his book, Barking to the Choir, he tells one of the stories of the homies he worked with. He says, Curly rarely asked to talk to me. Though he's been with us for six months, I met him in a probation camp when he was younger, but now he's 19 years old, graduated from our school, and just enrolled in community college. He's quiet, and English is still a struggle for him, his accent layering his words, but he does not often stand outside my door wanting an audience with me, so I'm eager to rush, usher him in. What's up, son? He tells me he's learned something important. I've discovered that you are my father, he says. <laughs> yeah, it's nice to have a father. And your dad? 
I have to ask the question. Curly shakes his head. He was never really there for me. Haven't seen him in like 10 years. Then he drifts away from, for a moment to a place all homies go when they talk about their past. After all these years, I can always tell, it's almost like a living photo album where they retrieve a snapshot they've tried to keep hidden. <sighs> my dad broke my arm once, he tells me, that his father came home from work one day, flying past Curly and his siblings who were playing in the living room to go to his bedroom. Within minutes, he reemerged, furious, asking who had stolen his batteries. Well, little Curly had a toy requiring two batteries and had found them in his father's dresser drawer. He tentatively raised his finger and said, I did. His father walked over to him, grabbed his arm, and snapped it in two. I was six years old, he manages to say through sobs. He does the best he can to compose himself. Yeah, it's nice to finally have a father. And even in Los Angeles, California, in one of the poorest neighborhoods with high gang activity, the kingdom of God is bursting forth in the ordinary. When I think about the kingdom of God bursting forth in the ordinary, I think of Fred McFeely Rogers, more commonly known as Mr. Rogers. And this is a trailer from a documentary that is coming out about his life and career, and I think it captures the extraordinary kingdom of God bursting forth in the ordinary. So watch this with me. There's nothing flashy about Mr. Rogers. In fact, I bet he was easily targeted in school for bullying. But the ordinary faithfulness of his love for others shows the extraordinariness of the kingdom bursting forth. And one thing I love about this church is the ordinariness of it. The other day, my husband Evan was standing outside the church talking with some friends and said, you know what I love about this church? It's just so ordinary. It, it can be hard to explain. I mean, we don't have smoke machines or fancy lighting, but as we love each other in ordinary ways, the good news of the extraordinary kingdom is bursting around us. I mean, it's everywhere. It's in the way you care for one another and bring each other meals. It's in the way you care for children and make sure each child is known and loved. It's in the way you have the bravery to share your story and be vulnerable enough to say, I don't have my life together. I have brokenness. I need a body of believers because I cannot do this on my own. And I see the kingdom f breaking forth in the thrift store at Lovelink when Mike, who's our cashier, provides an air-conditioned place of hospitality for people coming in off the street, and they can just be themselves. I see it in the dads who've decided they're not going to buy into the lie that, the, that masculinity means being macho and instead are going to care for their families and show gentleness and compassion. I see it in the way the people of this church continually come early and stay late to help set up or clean up and make sure that our new home on 8th Street is ready to receive our neighbors well. I also see it every week as we come to the table and receive the elements of communion. These are ordinary symbols of an extraordinary kingdom that is bursting forth. But I must warn you that as you give your life to this kingdom, mustard plants that have been sown will eventually grow into a giant bush that will uproot the foundation of your house. The harvest that you have sown will be cut down and poured out. Like the rose bushes my mom used to plant in our backyard in California when I was a girl, she would cut them down and prune off the beautiful branches so the bushes would look barren. But then new life would come to spring forth. Urban T. Holmes says it this way. 
Any good gardener knows that beautiful roses require careful pruning. Pieces of living plant must die. It cannot just grow wild. We cannot simply just celebrate growth. It's more than to be regretted. It is tragic that we have seemed to have lost the insight that growth in, requ- in Christ requires careful pruning. Pieces of us, by our intentional actions, need to die if we're going to become the person that, that is in God's vision. We are not cutting away a cancerous growth, but making room for intended growth. Mortification refers to that intentional action of pruning of life that better life may grow by God's grace, just as better roses grow by God's grace. Sometime after a Sermon on the Mount, Jesus asked his disciples, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus called a child to him. He put him in the midst of them and and then said, Unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And the disciples continued to argue over greatness, even after the Sermon on the Mount, in which all the categories are flipped on their head and everything is turned upside down, they were arguing over greatness. Even after Jesus had blessed the poor, the hungry, and the persecuted, the disciples were fixated on greatness. Worldliness is a hard habit to break. Jesus' act with the child is interesting. In many of our modern sophisticated congregations, children are often viewed as distractions. We tolerate children only to the extent they promise to become adults like us. Adult members sometimes complain that they cannot pay attention to the sermon. They cannot listen to the beautiful music with the fidgety children as they are beside them in the pews. Interestingly, Jesus puts a child in the center of his disciples, in the midst of them, in order to help them pay attention. The child, in Jesus' mind, was not an annoying distraction. The child was a last-ditch effort by God to help the disciples pay attention to the odd nature of God's kingdom. Few acts of Jesus are more radical, countercultural than his blessing of children. And this concrete example is a reminder of the kingdom of God in subtle and seemingly trivial and insignificant ways. You know, I see the, the ordinariness of the kingdom not only in the life of my father, but in the life of Rod Mossart, who's also here tonight, who's my husband's father, who faithfully serves his family and church behind the scenes without any thought of recognition who still has a childlike joy about him and a steadiness that puts you at ease. I see it in Jean Holsey, who is a retired minister who lived two houses down from Evan and Braden growing up, and they would let all the neighborhood kids play football on their lawn. Still to this day, whenever I see him, he tells me he's proud of us and praying for our family. Or Reverend Carlo Moises, who pastors a Haitian immigrant congregation on the island of Aruba, He took me and four other college students, including Liliana Reza, under his wing for a summer when we were young and very far from home, home, feeding us regular meals and making sure we were taken care of. Or Timothy Lamini, who's a district superintendent for the Church of the Nazarene in the country formerly known as Swaziland. I watched him and his wife selflessly care for orphaned and vulnerable children, taking them into their home and caring for them. He also took Evan and I under his wing and treated us like children when we were far from home. Or Evan, caring for our newborn son, Max, who had colic while I was struggling in the darkness of postpartum depression. Or Jesus, who's the ultimate and the most ordinary. He died an ordinary death on a cross that was considered common in the Roman Empire. He is the very embodiment of this ordinary yet extraordinary kingdom. 
Can you think of the ways the kingdom is making itself known? What are the ways you see kingdom, the kingdom bursting forth in the ordinariness of your own life? And the good news is that as you pour out your life for this kingdom, you don't have to do it on your own. There is a community that's doing this with you, and a loving Father who is saying, you are highly favored and you are greatly loved. And one way in which we experience the love of the Father is through the gift of communion. And at dinner on the night before Jesus was betrayed by those he came to save, he took ordinary bread, and he gave thanks, and he broke it, saying, This is my body, which is broken for you. Whenever you eat it, remember me. Then in the same way, after supper, he took the ordinary cup, and he said, This is the cup, is the covenant in my blood. Whenever you drink this, do so in affectionate remembrance of me. And anyone who's open to this gift is invited to this table. And we want no barriers, so we have bread that's gluten-free, and we have common wine that's non-alcoholic. And when you come down, one of our center aisles comes with your hands cupped, ready to receive that which is good and that which comes from God. Approach one of the servers, listen to what they have to say, dip the bread into the cup, and be thankful. And if for any reason you cannot make it down our aisle, wave your hand to Paul, and he will... Make sure that he can bring it to you. There's Paul right there. So please, when you're ready, come.